Today on The Dose, a fun, frank and fast-moving conversation with one of the world's most influential medical journal editors, Dr Rita Redberg. Hello, I'm Ray Moynihan and this is The Recommended Dose, the podcast about the big questions in healthcare, produced by Cochrane Australia and co-published currently by the BMJ. Apart from being editor-in-chief and running the journal called JAMA Internal Medicine for the past decade, Rita Redberg is also a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and a practising heart specialist who loves seeing patients. In fact, as you'll soon hear, just before coming on to do this podcast, she'd seen a patient who was taking 12 different medicines, and Rita recommended stopping almost half of them. Born in Brooklyn before it was hip, Rita Redberg, like the journal she runs, is not shy of controversy. We see our role primarily as to provide high-quality research that will help clinicians in their practice, as well as research that will talk about health policy and healthcare reform. And I have a great team of editors that have mostly been with me since I started, And we all have the vision to publish high-quality research and research that clinicians can really use. So articles that either tell us what we could do that would help us take better care of patients or things that we shouldn't do because they won't be helpful for our patients. So it's a combination of of the latest science, but also kind of big picture analysis of, of, of where the system might need reforming. That's right, because... I think part of practicing medicine, particularly um, in the U.S., is very much influenced by the environment that we're practicing in and the direction we're heading. And it's hard not to be aware that, you know, with our exponential cost growth, it doesn't seem sustainable. And so we're always looking towards ways to uh, sort of improve our use of healthcare resources to keep the healthcare system on a manageable and long-term trajectory. A previous guest on this podcast, uh, the BMJ editor-in-chief, Fiona Godley, was very clear that medical journals, you know, including the BMJ, the Lancet, have a long history of of campaigning on on big public health issues. Do you encounter any any criticism for the the campaigning that you do, or or do people celebrate it? So I guess I don't think of it so much as campaigning, which just sounds a little more political and advocacy role, but we see our role at at JAM Internal Medicine as kind of fueling the conversations that we think are important to happen. And so, for example, we like to provide the articles that have the research, the evidence, and also the opinions to get people thinking about things, particularly in a new way that perhaps they haven't thought of before. Let's talk about some of these issues. If we could talk first about medical devices. Devices don't, don't seem to get the same attention as pharmaceuticals generally, but, but they're a huge part of the world of medicine, aren't they? Oh, they absolutely are. Particularly in my world, I'm a cardiologist. Devices are very big in cardiology. They're big in orthopedic surgery. But in general, they're growing in use in the medicine and you're right that they don't get the attention that they should. And am I right in thinking that there's actually a, a massive number of of devices that are regularly recalled because of defects? I mean, is that the case? And, and, and how do you recall a device that's already in someone's body? <laughs> 
Oh, that's a big problem, actually. And it's one of the things I like to remind people when we're talking about the quality of evidence needed for device approvals is that if you do find out a device not just doesn't work, but is actually dangerous, it's not so simple. It's not like a pill where you could just stop taking it. Then you're faced with a terrible choice of either a risky operation to remove a device that's been implanted or leaving someone for the rest of their life with a device that they're worried is like a ticking time bomb and might cause problems or even kill them. A lot of listeners will be familiar with the the pelvic mesh scandal, as I'm sure you are, Rita. Um, You know, this was a a sort of dangerous and, 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 and one might say unproven device that's caused a lot of harm to a lot of women. Does that is is that a is that an important example for you of of the need to improve the the regulation of devices, the evaluation of devices? Oh, absolutely. I think pelvic mesh is unfortunately just one of many examples. You know, metal on metal hips, the um, various ICD leads. There was just a hardware um, left ventricular assist device recalled. There are a lot of devices that are being recalled, as you noted, Ray, and I suspect even more that we don't know about. And that's what I really worry is that our adverse event reporting for devices is so weak and underpowered that we don't even know the extent of the problems that our patients are experiencing with these devices that we are often implanting so how are people how are people supposed to find out what the the benefits and harms are of a device you know when their doctor offers it to them or when they they see it in an ad i mean you know i looked at some cochrane reviews this morning systematic reviews of the evidence about pelvic mesh and and they show up you know how weak a lot of the evidence is to support it but but i suspect those cochrane reviews weren't available back when when pelvic mesh was first being promoted heavily i mean how how do we find out the risks and benefits of things well you know ideally you find out from a discussion from your doctor when your doctor is recommending a device but unfortunately that's ideally and it's not happening nearly as often and or as regularly as it should be for a lot of reasons and one of them is just that the the evidence is often not available at the time of approval of a device. And so we have devices that have gone into widespread usage without good evidence of benefits or of their harms. One of the things you've launched, Rita, I think recently is a new series called called Sharing Medicine, a new series in JAMA Internal Medicine. This is partly about this new approach in medicine that's being championed now called shared decision-making um, between doctors and patients. You, you say when you launch that that the days of paternalism and expert knows best are behind us. Is that right or is that just wishful thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have to um, credit Richard Lehman from uh, Oxford who really did a lot of the work and, and the vision for that series and worked very closely with uh, Robert Steinbrook, one of my editors and colleagues. And it's, I think, a vision and an expression of where we see the field headed and where we clearly Things have changed, I think, and have moved more towards shared decision-making, but we clearly have a lot of ways, a lot of room to go. And I can see it even in my own, you know, family's medical care. It's very hard to challenge your doctor 
people are very um, shy about asking, well, why are you recommending this particular procedure or device? They don't feel comfortable asking questions often of the doctor. And I've had patients tell me that their doctors have really resented if they have questioned a recommendation and gotten upset with them. So we, I think, have made some progress towards shared decision-making, but we have a lot of continued uh, room to move. You said even in your own family it's hard to challenge what the doctor says. Can you give us, can you give us any insight into that, any examples? Well, sure. You know, my mother, who um, is in her ni- early 90s now, you know, her attitude, I think appropriately, is that she's much more interested in quality of life than in a lot of procedures that might pay off down the road three to five years. And so she had a melanoma removed and the doctor, the dermatologist recommended that she have more extensive surgery in case there had been any extension that they didn't catch, but the recuperation period would be several months. And my mother told me quite clearly that she didn't want that. You know, when I talked to the doctor, it was very nice and explained to me that, you know, the chance of recurrence then could be 10, 20 percent, a few, three to five years down the road. And my mother kind of laughed when I told her that and said, I don't know if I'll be here in three to five years and I definitely don't want that surgery. But she wanted me to talk to the doctor. She didn't feel comfortable challenging the doctor. And then the next, and I did talk to her doctor and explained all that. But then she said the next time she went back there again, the doctor said, well, I'd like to refer you to the surgeon. And again, my mother felt uncomfortable, you know, challenging the doctor and saying, no, I don't want to go to the surgeon. I, I think it's, it's just hard. You don't, I mean, doctors are in a position of authority, which, you know, is, you know, is the result of training and expertise, but it also makes it, I think, harder for patients uh, to challenge. And I think it is as a, in this sharing medicine series, there is still some remnants of the paternalism and the feeling that you can't challenge your doctor. So you'd be encouraging everyone listening to, to do as much challenging as, as, as they can. Well, I would think of it as asking questions. But I mean, I have lots of times that patients have a scar and I say, you know, what, what did you have? And they say, well, the doctor said I needed surgery. And they at least don't remember even, it just said doctor said I needed it. You know, they don't know why they needed the surgery. They had the surgery. I, I don't think for a long time there was a tradition of patients asking or of doctors feeling that we had to share the reasons for needing a particular procedure. And I do think that is changing. As editor of JAMA Internal Medicine, you you seem to be often in the media spotlight, writing high-profile pieces, places like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. One of the New York Times pieces you had had the very provocative title, We're Giving Ourselves Cancer. Can, Can you tell us briefly what that was about and what sort of reaction it generated? Um, sure, that was about our risk from uh, CT scans and radiation. And that was an op-ed that I wrote with a colleague, Rebecca smith Bindman, And it actually came from work that we had published in JAMA Internal Medicine, a study that she had done looking at how for the same CT scan, there can be between a 10 and 30 or even up to 50-fold difference in radiation depending on 
what hospital you went to, and even at the same hospital, on what day of the week, what technician, what settings the machine was at. So incredible difference in the amount of radiation you were getting. And in that same issue of GEM Internal Medicine, we had another article from the National Cancer Institute that said just for the CT scans that were done in one year, that was 2007, there would be 60,000 excess cancers and 30,000 excess deaths. And so, and that was just one year. And obviously, the number of CT scans has only grown every year since then. And so, if you extrapolate, that certainly would justify the title of we're giving ourselves cancer. And we noted that some of these CT scans are certainly necessary and could be life-saving, but a lot of them are actually not necessary. And that particularly with the proliferation of CT scans, which are an expensive piece of equipment, and you know the way human nature is, once you buy that expensive piece of equipment, you tend to use it. And, you know, most emergency rooms have now several CT scanners, doctor's offices, every hospital has CT scanners. And for things that I remember, you know, when I was training, someone came in with a stomach ache, we kind of did an exam, felt their belly and decided what to do. Now they're going to get a CT scan. And particularly for younger people, that is a really significant risk for uh, cancer. So what sort of reaction did you get to that piece? Well, it was kind of heartbreaking, some of it, because we got a lot of letters from parents whose children had had CT scans, and they were very worried about the cancer risk and what had they done to their children. Nobody told them about a cancer risk. Um, I, I don't think, of course, all the radiologists appreciated it, and they, you know, focus on the life-saving or the the beneficial parts of imaging, and we certainly have made great advances in imaging, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that we are overusing CT scans and that we are not really having a balanced discussion with patients about the benefits and risks of CT scanning when before we're recommending it. And another New York Times piece that you co-wrote was called Don't Give More Patients Statins. That was about a change in guidelines, which, which greatly expanded the number of people who should take these cholesterol-lowering drugs. What sort of reaction did you get to that piece? Well, I will say that piece was number one most emailed for almost a week, I think. I think statins are a big issue for a lot of people because there are a lot of healthy people whose lives are being made miserably miserable because they were recommended to have statins. And on the belief that this would somehow extend their lives, and it's quite clear, if I read the evidence very carefully, there's minimal to no benefits for most people that are taking statins. You know, the reduction in heart attack is pretty small, maybe one or two in a hundred of people that take statins for five years. I don't think there's any extension in mortality, so you're not living any longer. And I think, I mean, I, see, I saw patients this afternoon and Every week in clinic, I see people who come in who have been miserable on their statins and are terrified to stop them because they think they'll die if they stop taking their statins. But they come to see me because they want to stop taking statins, but they want to be sure they'll be okay. I I think that we have really made cholesterol just too much of an issue. It's not 
the biggest part of your heart disease risk. And people, because of a lot of the guidelines in our discussions, have become too focused on knowing their cholesterol and not focusing on sort of the bigger picture of how to reduce heart disease risk with diet, a healthy diet and regular physical activity and not smoking. So that was the thrust of that op-ed. And it was released right after the guidelines, the updated guidelines, which recommended even more healthy people to take statins. And is it important to mention a caveat? I mean, is it your view that the evidence suggests that if you already have some sort of existing heart disease, then a statin could give you some kind of benefit? Is, is that your view? Correct. We were talking about primary prevention in that op-ed. We were not challenging the evidence for secondary prevention. So if you have heart disease, if you've had a heart attack or have angina, then there clearly is benefit for statins. But most of the people that are taking statins are healthy people that are trying to avoid a first heart attack. And that's where I think um, the evidence does just does not show that the benefits outweigh all of the adverse effects. You mentioned the work that you do in your, your clinic. You mentioned seeing patients this afternoon, in fact. I'm presuming that, that you're one of the doctors that practice de-prescribing. Um, it's a funny time, isn't it, in the world we're living now, in the world of healthcare, um, where these new words are emerging, like de-prescribing. Is, mm-hmm. is, is that, yes. is, is that going to be a hard skill for a lot of doctors to learn, how to, how to de-prescribe? Well, I think anytime you have a sort of change in culture, it's a little hard, but I don't think it's actually that hard. I mean, we've had, well, the beers criteria and other criteria for a long time, but a lot of it is just common sense. But I have to say, I think once you start doing it, the feedback I get from patients who I've stopped some of their medications is so positive that it's not really very hard because people feel much better when you can take them off the medications that they really don't need. I mean, we just, you know, the average person, particularly as we get older, is now on like five to seven medications. That was never true 20 years ago. And a lot of them are things that people don't need, aren't making them feel better, and there's a synergistic effect being on so many medications. But you're right, the last patient I saw, she came in and she she said she's on too many medications. She said she wants a holistic approach. But when I talked to her, clearly her idea of holistic was just being on less medications. And I stopped five of her list of 12 and told her we'd see how this goes. And next time I saw her, maybe we could stop one or two more and you know talked again about diet and lifestyle. And she had heart disease, but she still didn't need as many medications as she had been put on. You can take away an unneeded drug, but, but I think taking away an unneeded diagnosis is going to be a lot more, more complicated. Yeah. There are companies now offering to screen the genomes of healthy people in San Diego, in Sydney, yeah. and in no doubt in many other countries and, and cities around the world, um, you know, presumably to detect the early signs of disease and, and thus prevent it. What's your view about this, right. this new wave of genomic tests that are being promoted to the healthy? Well, Ray, I, um, I think you alluded to the concerns. I mean, for, maybe Gil Welch said it, but, you know, there's, I mean, we're getting to like, there's no such thing as a healthy person, just someone who hasn't had enough tests. I mean, I feel like we're, we keep 
wanting to open Pandora's box. And we know what happens when you open Pandora's box, and it's not good. What does happen? Bad, evil humors come out, and they won't go back in. And, and I think that's what happens. You know, I tell people, if you're feeling well, it's very hard to have a test that's going to improve on that. You know, let well enough alone. You know, work on, you know, eating whole foods and a healthy diet and getting regular exercise and spending time with people you love. And you don't need a test because that's not going to help you live longer or feel better. And it's to find sort of early disease that has, first of all, we don't even know how reliable those genetic tests are. So a lot of the testing has been shown if you same, send the same specimen to three different labs, you get three totally different interpretations. So that's a problem. But then even if you have a reliable interpretation, I mean, to be told you have a 30% chance of getting Alzheimer's, I mean, h- how is that helpful? It's a 30% chance you don't know what to do. And I would say you're still the best, your best strategy is to live a healthy lifestyle and do the best you can and then forget about it. A lot of this evidence about unnecessary care is actually being built in, in part through through the series you launched a, a while back called Less Is More. I mean, and you know, we've talked about some of these issues already. But do you think do you think things are changing? Do you think you know your Less Is More series, things like Choosing Wisely, other initiatives around the world? Do you think there is a growing appreciation of this, or or, or are things getting worse? Well, I think there is a growing appreciation that we overuse procedures and that there are harms. I mean, our real impetus to start the list is more serious was because we thought that there was insufficient realization and discussion that there are harms to some medical procedures. And if they have no known benefits, then all you're left with is the harms. I, I think we have made some progress, but I think partly due to the culture of medicine and our belief for so long that early detection was better, although the more I look at it, the less I believe that. And I have to say, particularly in the U.S. and other countries that have fee-for-service medicine, you know, when we get paid to do things, there's an incentive to do things. Rita, you have many interests. One of them is is women's health. Um, a, a recent article that you were you were part of was called "The Risk of Remaining Silent: Addressing the Current Threats to Women's Health." Very much about the sort of U.S. Trump administration and and what mm-hmm. seems like an attack on women's access to contraception and other services. Is this? And, and I think there was a call in that article for sort of greater advocacy or greater speaking out on the part of clinicians and public health experts. Is that right? That's correct. That was really led by um, my colleague at the Institute, the director of the Institute for Health Policy Studies, Claire Brindis, and others were very concerned that there's a loss of women's rights and women's health in this country in the last year and two. What role do you think, you know, public health, doctors, you know, the medical world can play in that? Well... You know, we in that case, we thought writing an editorial and raising our our voices and saying that we see the consequences of what happens to women patients when they don't have access to health care, they don't have access to needed health care, they don't have choices about their health care. The other thing I've been very active about is trying to 
um, advocate that we have to have sufficient numbers of women in clinical trials so that when we test drugs and devices, for many years, we were testing drugs and devices on mostly male populations, basically mostly white male populations. And harms and benefits, which we've been talking about a lot, you and I, uh, are different for many things, for men and women. And so it's just not sufficient to have 90% men in a trial and then say, and this will apply to women too, because it may not. But I think as a physician, I really understand and can see that risks and benefits do differ for men and women and then can more effectively advocate to include women in sufficient numbers in clinical trials. Before we close, uh, Rita, I'd like to shift, if we can, a, li- a little to a bit more of a discussion about you, your 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 personal history. Can can you tell us a little bit about your family background? You know where you came from, how that how that might have shaped your your w- worldview. I think I'm right in saying you didn't come from the medical establishment, did you? <laughs> I didn't come from the medical establishment. No, um, actually, neither of my parents uh, graduated from high school. My father got a high school equivalency diploma. My mother did not. So I was the first one in my family to go to college and then on to medical school. And I did it um, with financial aid and scholarship. I did not have financial support from my parents because they had fairly modest means. So I would say that the idea of of Avoiding waste was instilled in me very early in life just because it wasn't a financial option for us. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, as I say, before it was hip. And the part of Brooklyn (laughs) that I grew up in is still not very hip. (laughs) But, um, But I was very fortunate to, you know, go to Cornell University on a scholarship and then to attend the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, um, where I ran into John Eisenberg, which was incredibly lucky. You know, he um, at that time was the chief of general internal medicine, and I thought I wanted to be a general internist And um, when I entered. So I was working with him, and he was very much into sort of the big picture and challenging the house staff at that time on their use of testing and sort of asking questions and saying, did you really need this test? And did it lead to change in patient management? And he discovered it was actually very hard to change the house staff behavior, but it made a big impression on me and really did lead me, because I was just a second-year medical student at that time, to start questioning things that I had taken for granted was that if I was taught to order a certain thing every day that it was for a good reason, and I realized that there are a lot of things that have become part of medical culture that don't have a good or a strong evidence base. And so that really got me interested in uh, health policy. I went, I got a Turan fellowship from the University of Pennsylvania and studied for a year at the London School of Economics doing health policy in between my third and fourth year of medical school. And that again, you know, seeing the National Health Service and a system where there's universal coverage, you know, everyone has access to health care, and Great Britain, as you know, spends much less than the United States does, was very interesting and very eye-opening for me. Yes, I had the good fortune of studying in the U.S. and looking at the U.S. Uh, the U.S. healthcare system <laughs> that spends almost twice as much as, as as many other countries, but but doesn't doesn't get the same uh, benefits. Well, um, exactly. I mean, I think you do much better in Australia. I mean, most countries. I mean, everyone spends less than we do, but I think the 
coverage and the value of spending is much greater in Australia and a lot of Western European countries than in the U.S., So you you trained as a doctor and you clearly love medicine. I mean, the fact that you're still practicing as a cardiologist today, you could easily just devote all your time to the journal and, and, and other work, but you must have a real passion for actually being there in the room, you know, talking to people about their health issues. I do. I love seeing patients and I feel like being a doctor really is a privilege. I mean, patients still um, trust their doctor. I feel like I can help people feel better. It's very rewarding to me when, you know, I can reassure somebody or help them with um, an illness or concern. I think it's a great privilege to be a doctor and I'm don't intend to stop practicing. Outside of your work, Rita, I think you like to get outside. You like to get outdoors into into the into the wild, into the world. And like many listeners, including the French president, you're worried that there's no planet B. <laughs> That's true, actually. Um, my husband and I, a few weeks ago, did what was called a climate ride in California. So we rode 320 miles from Northern California to San Francisco, which was very beautiful, but it was a fundraiser for a climate change awareness because we um, you know, are greatly concerned that we are not leaving behind um, a great world and a great future um, for the next generations, for our children and, and their children. I just flew back from uh, Switzerland, actually, Fee Godley and I were at the same conference, and I felt like coming over Hudson Bay in the Arctic, it looked to me like, not that I'm an expert in it, but that there was just a lot less glaciers and a lot less ice. I, I think it's very hard to deny that there's clearly a climate change and that we really need to uh, take care of our planet so that it's here. Just to close, uh, Rita Redberg, there was a, a beautiful short piece from you a couple of years ago and in your journal uh, suggesting that you advise some of your patients to, to, to try and forget about spending money on an unnecessary cardiac test and in, instead spend it on a sauna or a massage. It, 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 it reminds me of a book by a Cambridge philosopher, Jacob uh, Stegenga, that I'm just reading at the moment. It's just come out. It's advocating a radical shift to a much more gentle form of medicine. You know, is that possible or is it, it just a wild dream? I like to think it's possible. I mean, if you think of medicine is a lot of what we do is trying to help people feel better. And that's where I think things like sauna and massage come in. I mean, you look at, for example, all the treatments for back pain, and very few of them have really been shown to be effective in any high-quality clinical trial. But so many people feel better after a sauna or a massage, you know, their pains go away, they feel less stressed. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that we should be incorporating sort of a wider range of approaches to helping people feel better, which I do think is part of the role of being a doctor. You know, particularly older patients, I think, would feel a lot better with saunas, massages, those kind of relaxing things, and they would with, you know, a cardiac defibrillator that I'm going to put in in someone who has, you know, very very little chance of benefit from it. And it's going to be a lot cheaper just to 
have that sauna or massage. And we've actually, we published papers showing the health benefits of saunas. So I think it's very evidence-based. I think that massage has been around since Hippocrates. I mean, it was part, part, of, part <laughs> of mainstream medicine back then, wasn't it? <laughs> I think you're right, and I think I think they were onto something. R- Rita Redbird, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ray. It was a pleasure. Editor in chief of JAMA Internal Medicine, Rita Redberg, on the recommended dose. Many thanks to Shauna Hurley and Cochrane Australia for production, to Jan Mutz for editing, and Brian Coe for the cross to San Francisco. 